This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, today is the fourth and final week of our series uh, called Together in This. Together in This, one service, one vision, one church. The first two weeks of our series, we focused on the last word of that title, Together in This. And by focusing on the word this, we were asking ourselves, what is the this that we are together in? If we're together in this, it would stand to reason that we need to know what this is that we're in one, with one another. So we spent a couple of weeks uh, in an effort to give clarity regarding our church's identity, uh, regarding our church's vision, our church's mission, our theological lens, how we see God, how we see Christ, the Bible, humanity, life, babies. We just spent some time talking about who we are as a church. If you're new to the church, if you weren't here, if you're old to the church, you weren't here, uh, two weeks ago was the lesson that I would encourage you to pick up. All of us need to hear it probably again. Uh, two weeks ago, I think that was the 19th of April. Last week, Pastor Melissa shifted our attention to the first word of the title, So we went from this at the end to the first word, together, together in this. And Melissa broached the question for us, what does it mean to be together in this? So whereas the first two weeks we asked together in what? What are we together in? Uh, Last week and this week we're asking in this how? How are we in this? And the answer is simply We're in this together. Now, obviously, I don't want to be overly simplistic here, but uh, together is an important word for us as Christians, as a church, as a local congregation, and not just as Christians in a local congregation, but as human beings. Everything we do, whether it are, there are many pillars in society, the pillar of Uh, pillars of art, pillars of education, pillars of religion, we all know that the human experience is done best together. And that's especially true, I think, of our religious experience. And the word together indicates, you guys know, it indicates relationship. Together indicates uh, proximity, cooperation. We're in this together. That word indicates collaboration, um, partnership, Uh, obviously, um, you know what the word together means, but I want to set it and I want to fix it in the sense of what this feels like in spiritual terms, we would call them, in ecclesial terms, in church terms. Um, Before I do that, I want to back up. I was looking today at just the word together itself. It's etymology, where the word comes from. And um, together comes from an old English word that's based on the preposition to, together, to, which implies movement. You're moving to something, towards something. And an old West German, a Germanic word that's related to the word gather. So you would have guessed this, but when you look at the etymology of the word, it goes back to a compound word that means to gather. So it was, in a a sense, it was first an an action. It was first a, a verb. And we know that Uh, Gathering means to bring people or things near one another for a purpose. So to gather something is to bring people or things 
near one another, into proximity, into relationship for a purpose. So together means to be gathered. So if we are together in Christ, then the indication is that Christ has gathered us together for a purpose. And we believe that. We believe that we've been brought near for a purpose. We have a sense of being gathered ones. We have a sense of being gathered by some, something external, something internal. And we have a sense that God is the gatherer. That somehow we are not just whimsically positioned here today, but families like Elizabeth and Leah and Carter, Emmeline, families like these, we end up sitting together. And we have a sense that, that this was not just happenstance, but somewhere the Lord was the one that brought you into our life and us into your life. Um, Ashley, maybe I'll pastor you the next decade. I pastored one sister 10 year, 20 years ago, and now these girls. Now, you'll have to move here in a few years, and I'll pastor you. But we always have a sense that this isn't just caprice or whimsy, that somehow God is the one doing the gathering. I want, I want you to listen to a text from the Apostle Paul in his first biblical letter to the church at Corinth. I say his first biblical letter because he had written many letters to them, no doubt, before. But this is the first one that we have recorded and Paul talks about this issue of being together in an ecclesial or a church setting. He talks about it and, and he explains this idea of our togetherness by employing a metaphor of the human body. I want you to look, there's quite a few verses here, but every one of them are chock full of meaning. So look at 1 Corinthians 12 and just read through this with me. Follow. The body of Christ has many different parts. Let me get down here with you. Let's look at this. The body of Christ, the gathered ones, has many different parts just as any other body does. Some of us are Jews, others are Gentiles, some of us are slaves, look at that. Others are free. But God's Spirit baptized each of us. There's a gatherer. God's Spirit baptized each of us and made us part of the body of Christ. Now, we each drink from that same Spirit now Paul shifts to the metaphor. Our bodies don't have just one part. They have many parts. Suppose a foot says, I'm not a hand, and so I'm not a part of the body. Wouldn't the foot still belong to the body? Suppose an ear says, I'm not an eye, so I'm not part of the body. Wouldn't the ear? And there is that possibility in a sea of people, in a community of faith, that people, because of their differences, could feel like they don't belong. That's always been with us. And so the ear might feel, because it's not an eye, it looks around and thinks this is kind of an eye kind of place, it's not an ear kind of place, that maybe it doesn't belong. If our bodies were only an ear, we wouldn't hear a thing. And if everybody looked exactly like me or exactly like you, came from the same world that you came from, this would be an incredibly boring place and probably an incomplete place. If, if a body was only an ear, we, we couldn't smell a thing. But God has put, there's the gatherer. We have this sense of being gathered. But God has put all parts of our body together. There's that word, 
God has put all parts of our body together in the way that he decided is best. A body isn't really a body unless there's more than one part. It takes many parts to make a single body. Now watch this. That's why the eyes cannot say that they don't need the hands. That's also why the head cannot say it doesn't need the feet. In fact, we cannot get along without the parts of the body that seem to be the weakest. We take special care to dress up some parts of our bodies. We're modest about our personal parts, but we don't have to be modest about other parts. God put our bodies together in such a way that even the parts that seem the least important are valuable. He did this to make all parts of the body work smoothly. He put us all together with all of these different functions, different stylisms, different ways of being in the world, different dispositions, different gifts, different desires. He put us all together, these different parts, so that we would work smoothly with each part caring about the others. And if one part of our body hurts, you want to know how you're really a, a functioning and effective church? When pain distributes evenly throughout the congregation far. The more heightened and effective and healthy the central nervous system of a church is, the more cleanly and purely the pain and the joy is felt all the way to the periphery. No paralysis, utter connectedness. If one part, what a description of a church, if one part of our body hurts, we hurt all over. If one part of our body has a pretty little dress on and is having her day in the sun, our hearts are full. Because we stand on the outskirts of that crowd and we say with Jesus, that's my daughter. That's my sister. That's our girl. And the whole body is happy. Together, there it is, together you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is part of his body. Now look at that. Together, you. The you there is obviously plural. Paul's looking out at a body like this and he's saying, together you, plural, are the body of Christ. And then he immediately follows that and says, individually, you. That's singular. You are a member of the body of Christ. You are a part of the body of Christ. So you are not the body of Christ individually. You're just a part. But if you take your part and put it with another person's part and a bunch of parts come together and are vivified by the Spirit of God, then together... That becomes the body of Christ, and we begin to figure out why Jesus would say, let me go, Mary, I must needs go to the Father. I've told you that I'm leaving, and you're grieved. Greater works than these shall you, that's plural, shall you do because I go unto the Father. We begin to get the sense that what Jesus was saying was no longer will the body of Christ be this localized, bronze-skinned Galilean so that everywhere Jesus goes, there is God, but the body of Christ is actually going to be this together functioning group of many parts who understand that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. And Jesus would say to the Father one day, I'm not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters and he is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters and we are of the essence of Jesus and we are called the body of Christ. Holy mackerel. Huh. 
I love verse 13. Some are Jews, some are Gentiles. Don't miss that. We need modern parlance for these kinds of things, but he picked people who were the farthest apart in the world. Some are Jews, some are Gentiles. He couldn't have picked two groups of people farther apart than those two groups of people. And, and yet he stretched and he tried. He said, and some are slaves and some are free. But here's the gatherer. God's spirit has baptized each of us. We are very different in this room. And yet we are very much the same. And our common denominator is that we have been joined by the gatherer, baptized by the spirit and we have been made a part of the body of Christ. I love the way he finishes that verse. Now we each drink from the same spirit. I don't know how you read that. We each drink from the same spirit. But I, I mentioned earlier, I come from a Pentecostal background. And those of you that don't understand Pentecostalism, um, I'm not going to try to explain it to you. But, <laughs> but there's so much right about my Pentecostal roots, so much right about what that movement brought, has brought to the body of Christ. And we, we brought some emotion back. We brought heart back and the idea of experience back. And, and when I start thinking about drinking from the same spirit, I remember old brother Nations, old brother Nations that used to say, when he'd testify, he would say, Brother Greer, I got under the spout where the glory comes out. <laughs> we drink from the same spirit. That's what Peter was saying on the day of Pentecost when he said, these aren't drunk as you suppose. They're drunk all right, but they're not drunk like you think. Oh, to be drunk under the Spirit of God. That's what Paul was trying to tell the church when he said, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, which means to be controlled by the Spirit. That's being under the influence, Michael, of, of God. Our union in God is our ultimate togetherness. And, and that old cliche that the whole is more than the sum of its parts, it has never been more true than with the body. The whole is more than the sum of its parts. I don't want to be macabre here, but take all the parts of a physical body and put them together dismembered, and they are worth virtually nothing. Think about it. Think about all the parts of your body, the accumulative parts of your body. Take them apart and stack them together, and they are nothing unless they are connected by a life force. And then, wow, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And Paul said all these people, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, they come together, and they are a million miles apart, but they're drinking from the same spirit, and all of a sudden, their hearts begin to beat in rhythm. Their causes begin to be the same. They begin to look at life differently together. This is Paul's argument in favor of our togetherness as the body of Christ. You cannot dismember the body of Christ and do the work of the kingdom. You can't do life dismembered. We need one another to fulfill our purpose. Human relationships are hard. Thank God Jesus didn't say that we have to like one another. You ever thought about that? That would have been tough. He said you have to love one another. We can do that, can't we? But we have to love people that we don't necessarily 
easily like, people who get on our nerves, people who do life differently, people that bother us. Human relationships are difficult, but they're the crucible. They're the lab. They're the potter's wheel of life. We are more together than the sum of our parts. And so as a Christian church, people who are gathered by Christ, a Christian church is a group of grateful people who understand life as a gift. A Christian church, you want to know what together means? Here it is. A Christian church is a group of people that believe that life has meaning, and that meaning has been informed by this person named Jesus Christ. A Christian church is a group of people that believe love is the answer, that love is the goal. A Christian church is a group of people who are bothered by Nepal and Baltimore. Christian people are vivified by a life force. We are not disconnected members, but there is a circulatory system running through us that binds us with the blood of another, the blood of God, and it vivifies, it vivifies us, and it, it gives us this sense that in the midst of our happiness, in the midst of our donuts and hot dogs, in the midst of it all, we have this nagging sense that there can be no full and final peace for any of us until there's true peace for all of us. A Christian church is a place, Ferline, where we, we believe that we are angels, as the wise man said, with one wing who cannot fly unless we go arm in arm. A Christian church is a group of people who believe that life was meant to be shared, meant to be lived together, Christian church is a group of people who understand even if we don't necessarily feel drawn to one another externally by surface forces, we need one another. We even believe that we were created to need one another, that somehow God wired the whole deal that our lives are going to be better, richer, fuller, and deeper together than they are apart. The Judeo-Christian faith teaches this from its very earliest teachings. The Judeo-Christian faith is divinely incarnational, divine of the essence of God, incarnational, incarnare, Latin, incarnivorous, flesh, incarnational, in flesh. We are divinely fleshed out. That's our faith. We are incarnationally divine and divinely incarnational. This simply means that we find and experience God in one another. We experience God in flesh. Look at the original story. One day, two day, three day, four day, five day, six days over the course. Those early wisdom writers understood that life was somehow created over time, gradually. They didn't get all of the science. They didn't have scientific language. But in a pre-scientific way, there was the intuition that life was a process and that God rolled this thing out through the ages. And then finally, out of the dust of the earth, rising up out of the dust of the earth, out of organic matter, the image of God is so irrepressible that it bubbles up until finally a human being with consciousness reaches toward the sky. Well, back to the story, looking at the story in, it, in, its, in its, its picture, the way it was told, the Bible says that God created a man and he walked with that man for a season of time and one day God looked at that guy and said, it's not good for you to be alone. 
This is bigger than marriage. It's far bigger than marriage. God didn't look at the guy and say, it's not good for you to be unmarried. God said, it's not good for you to be alone. Now, if that guy would have been raised in the world that I was raised in, he would have looked at God and said, what do you mean alone? I've got you and you're my everything. At which point God would have rolled his eyes and said, oh, come on, quit trying to be more spiritual than God. <laughs> Listen, God described a human being with God as alone. You think God doesn't value human relationships? You ever thought about that? God described a human being with God as alone. And God looked at that and said, that's not good. For all of you that are caught in the unfortunate trap of bad religion that tells you that you've got to continue tiptoeing, stretching, arching your back, fawning for the heaven's attention, this story should relieve you greatly. Because the Bible says that when God looked at him and said, you're alone, this is after walking with him in the cool of the day for only God knows how long. God looked at him and said, I'm going to fix this. And instead of making him more erudite, more esoteric, more wise, more sage, instead of lifting him up until finally his head, his soul stretched into the heavens and he could communicate with the divine more effectively, that's not the way God fixed it, Missy. The Bible says God fixed it by causing a deep sleep to come over him. And he took out of the essence of the human, which was created in the image of God, out of divine essence in the human, another human. And when those two humans woke up, they didn't stretch their hands out and sing a praise chorus to Jesus. The Bible said they looked at one another and God sat down and said, now that's very good. I like that. Man with God, alone, not good. Two human beings together, God smiled and said, that's what we need. Divinely incarnational, incarnationally divine. The remedy of God was to drive us toward one another. And isn't that the story? Incarnation, where do we get that word? We normally think about that word with Jesus. God comes down and there is Jesus in flesh. And we wrap our arms around him and God wraps his arms around us, and God is fleshed out for us. And then he leaves us, death, burial, resurrection, and we're grieved, and he gets up out of the grave, and Mary wraps her arms around him again and says, I'm not letting you go, and he uncurls her fingers, unwraps her arms, and says, let me go. And he comes back, and the spirit drops into all flesh, Joel said he'll pour out his spirit upon all flesh and all of a sudden we look around at one another and we realize this was the word, this was the plan from the beginning that we would recognize the image of God in one another. For before our great theologians ever called Jesus the express image of God, Adam and Eve were called the image of God in flesh. No wonder Jesus is able to say at judgment I was hungry, and you fed me. And those of us whose religions cast our eyes toward the sky all the time, trying to fix our spirituality with these esoteric methods of mining and divining the heavens, 
Jesus said, you missed the whole point. I was in prison. And you came and visited me there. And we look and say, when did we see you there? And Jesus said, as much as you did it unto the least of these, you did it unto me. And 1 John 4, 20 says, how do you say you love God whom you haven't seen? Admit it, you haven't seen him. How do you love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love those whom you do see? In Christ, we're taught that the horizontal and the vertical are not nearly as distinct as we have had a tendency to make them, but the horizontal and the vertical are embedded in one another. And a local church is a wonderful opportunity for you to experience this kind of ultimate meaning, to be gathered, to be together with other human beings, other beloved children of God, and to experience our connectedness and our relatedness, our interwovenness. And in the church, Cain's question is finally answered. Am I my brother's keeper? And God through the Christian church says, no. You are his sister. You are not his keeper. But you are his brother. And Jesus on his way to a cross looks at his disciples and says, they will know that you are mine when they watch the way you love them. No. They will know that you're my disciples. Your ultimate marketing of the wonderful news of God's inclusive love, the message of the kingdom, they will know that when they watch you love one another. People are smart enough to know that the way you clean up in your marketing and meet with them is not really the true story. They will watch you with the people closest to you. I remember when I learned that the first time. I was a young preacher and I walked into a home and was greeted by a man who was a pastor of a large church in our little movement. He rolled out the red carpet for me and he treated me those first 24 hours like a king. I was just a young evangelist and I, I will never forget the way he treated me. And the reason I will never forget it is because it was juxtaposed, John, starkly against the backdrop of how he treated his wife and children. And I remember, I remember even in the same room, his kindness toward me and his incivility toward his child. And I remember thinking, not good. And it even made me dubious to what he was expressing toward me. And I hear John say, how do you say you love those whom you don't see if you don't love those whom you do? We're really gonna do something from Malawi and Nepal and Baltimore? He said, they're gonna watch you first. If Nepal and Baltimore are smart, they're gonna watch you first and they're gonna watch how you treat one another here in proximity. Everyone will know, Jesus said, we have no greater witness to the message of my love than the love that we express, Jesus said, to one another, our devotion to one another. And that's where I wanna conclude this series by just saying some really 
practical things to you. As a part of a local church, as a part of a Christian congregation, we have, and I want you to please hear me, as a part of a local congregation, we have, on one hand, we have rights and privileges. People want to know, what are the rights and privileges here? As they're church shopping. Can you imagine if somebody told Jesus 2,000 years ago that one of these days the church is going to get so prolific that people are going to do something? We're going to have in the lexicon of our vocabulary this phrase, church shopping. Can you imagine telling Paul you're going church shopping? But we have that luxury today because there are so many great churches, especially in the Bible Belt. And as a part of a local church, I just want you to know you have rights and privileges, but I also want you to know you have roles and responsibilities. As a part of Grace Point, everyone in this room, you are both givers and you are receivers. You have a responsibility to give and you have a luxury of receiving. And I actually think when we find our way into both of these things properly, they will become so intertwined that you won't be able to detangle and differentiate what's the giving and what's the receiving. When you really do it right, it'll be weird, Frank, all of a sudden the giving will start feeling like, I think I just went all the way to Florida to visit with prisoners and who got blessed? I just handed out bulletins and thought, oh, I gotta hand out bulletins this morning. And I touched 75 people, some of which looked into my eyes and filled me up. Was that giving or receiving? In the giving will be the receiving, and in the receiving will be the giving. And in the role, you will have your rights and your responsibilities will become your privilege. Justin's getting ready to come and talk to you about uh, some things that are very important here in the life of our church. Our church is in a pivotal moment and every word that we say right now is so measured. These are exciting times, these are beautiful times. But if you are church shopping, I want you to know what you can expect here. You can expect to receive life nurturing. You can expect to receive spiritual direction, soul stimulation, inspiration, information, encouragement, care, you can, you can receive the opportunity to be a part of something larger. Leah and Elizabeth, you can have a congregation stretch their arms out to your baby and actually mean it. And you can set her in a Sunday school classroom and people who learn her name only that day will take care of her Tell her about Jesus. But you can also expect here that you have to give because this is not a shopping market. This is a place that makes disciples of Jesus Christ and asks people his question, Jackson, can you be baptized with the baptism wherewith he's baptized and can you follow him? Can you bring your gifts and skills? Can you bring your elbow grease? Can you bring your finances? This church has made a prolific move in the last few months. It is the fruition and the fulfillment of everything that I believe was rooted in this church from its very earliest days. 
The cost have been dire. In the middle of a beautiful move of God's spirit, our very existence is threatened. Chairman of the board stands beside me to relate a few things from our business meeting Wednesday night to remind you that you have the, the responsibility to give and to take care of this place. And the last thing that I would say to you is that you have the responsibility to bring presence to this place. The modern church has created a generation of moochers. People who shop consumeristically take and depend upon a small minority of people to take care of the rest. We need your presence here. Tonight, almost 300 people will be in meal groups. There are some of you who did not sign up for a meal group for good reasons. There are others of you, and I had a couple of people tell me, I don't really need a meal group. Have you wondered if maybe a meal group needs you? Is it only what you need? I can't tell you through the years, Steve, how many people we've heard say, I don't need a life group. Don't doubt it a bit. I know what it is. I, I'm one of those, I got a job that gives you plenty of friends. But the young couple that moves here from Minnesota that doesn't know anybody, the couple who moved down from Boston that don't know anybody in the whole place, I know you don't need a life group. You think a life group might need you? I walked through the children's hallway a few years ago and as I passed a woman that I had seen many times in our church but I had never spoken to and she had never spoken to me, she was probably a little older than my mother and very elegant and intimidating. And I walked by her. You say, well, the preacher's intimidated. Yeah, we intimidate one another. The way we carry ourselves, we're intimidated by one another. And I walked past her and I smiled and she smiled and I got about five steps down and something hit me and it said, stop, turn around. And when I turned around to look, she was standing there, Mark, looking straight at me. And it hit me, if I would have kept on walking, Dale, she would have stood there watching somebody do what come to find out people have been doing her whole life, and that's walking the other direction. I don't have time to tell you her story, but she's still a part of our church. But when I turned around and looked at her, it was awkward, but I knew she was standing there for a reason. I was standing there, and I walked up to her, and this is not my spiritual gift, but I looked at her and said, can I hug you? She didn't even answer except to fall on my shoulder in the middle of the kid's hallway. And again, that's not my spiritual gift, and I held... <laughs> From the Pentecostal background, we were, Mark, we were big time side huggers. You know, you might touch something you're not supposed to touch, so you... But she was above my mother's age, so she melted into me and I held her. And as I tried to untangle myself after about 45 seconds to a minute, I began to talk trying to detangle this snarl of flesh. And this woman looked at me into my eyes and she said, this is the first human touch I have had in a year.
Jacob looked at Esau and said, I thought you would want to kill me for what I did to you 20 years ago. And Esau said, I love you. I forgive you. And Jacob said, your face is the face of God to me. We talk about being the hands and feet, the shoulders of God. But we have a chance to be the face of God, the eyes of God. I know that some of you don't need to hang around after church for lunch. Have you thought somebody might need you to hang around today after church for lunch? That, brothers and sisters, is a local church. And that is our call. Can you say amen?